and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with Andy Murray, James Harkin, and Anna Chazinski. And once again, we've gathered around the microphones, this time with our four favorite winter facts for our winter special, as it's really cold. <laughs> and in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Anna Chazinski. My fact this week is that Socrates had a spirit who spoke to him through the medium of sneezing. And this is one of the great thinkers of Western civilization, (laughs) just to be clear. He was guided by sneezes. Aristotle wrote about sneezing as well. Did he? Yeah. So he said that sneezing was of divine origin. Or he said that that was believed at the time. Mm. So coughing wasn't. And if your nose was running, that didn't mean anything. But he said, (laughs) why is it that we think sneezing is divine? Is it because it arises from the most divine part of us, the head? from where reasoning comes. Um, but there's there's one other thing we know about Aristotle as well, which is that he was one of the people who, when they look at a bright light, they sneeze. Oh, did he? Oh. Yeah. Oh. And Photic. Weirdos. Photic sneezing. And it only affects between one in three and one in ten people. But we know that he was one of them because he said, why does this happen? How have oh. we not managed to pin that down to a more precise statistic? How hard is it to interview 100 people and find out if it's one in three or one I'll in ten? I'll tell you why it's weird. Because people like me who don't have this until they meet someone who has it, think that it's completely made up. You yeah. think, how is that even possible? Yeah. And then people who have it think that everyone has it. Wow. That's what I've found in the past. I'm I, sure I'm that's sure. not... Uh, and I that's, thought everyone yeah. had it because I have it. Yeah. Yeah. I, just, I, don't believe any, I don't believe it's possible. I, I, need to, I need to pee when I'm around books. <laughs> <laughs> is that a thing as well? That's why that you're banned from foils. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is a thing. Is, is that, that a thing? Is it not a Japanese um, thing about um, there's a word which means the impulsion that you want to defecate it, in a library? It's, yes. it's a yes. Mariko Aoki phenomenon. That's right. Is what it's called. And it's named after the only ever sufferer Until of Until now. <laughs> <laughs> but the rumor it has loads of books in it, Dan. This must be a nightmare for I'm you. Just constantly on edge. <laughs> <laughs> Cleaners of this office have a rough time at the weekend. <laughs> Uh, There's a wiki page of what to say if um, people sneeze around the world. Uh, In Albanian, you say the Albanian word for health. It's quite similar around the world. Quite a lot of people say for health or or God bless you. In Amharaic, they say may God forgive you. In Azeri, they say be healthy. And in the Rithangu language of Australia, they say class bin kuruan which means you have released nose water. (laughs) (laughs) I found that page as well. Hmm. And the Filipino response to it, almost all of them are, you know, God bless you, may God forgive you, God have mercy on you, or whatever. The Filipino response is to say, Naligo Ako A, which means, hey, I took a bath. (laughs) <laughs> what? Is, is that, that to say I, think, I sort of took a bath in your mucus? I took a bath. No, I think it's I took a bath and now you've sneezed on oh, me. Oh, I have think. To take another one. Oh, right. And the response from the sneezer is, "Who didn't take a bath?" <laughs> 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 or maybe it's, "Who didn't take a bath?" Yeah, I'm not sure. I but. think that sounds like um, you know when if someone sneezes on you, we used to say as kids was uh, I asked for the news, not the weather. Oh, yeah. nice. That sounds similar to that. Yeah, like it's. Does, uh, yeah. 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 Um just on sneezing. Yeah. Dogs sneeze. Do they? Yeah. And uh what's interesting is they do it when they encounter another dog but they actively sneeze so they sort of fake sneeze in order to show that they're not aggressive to say that they're they just want to hang. Really? It, uh, yeah, so it's a it's a sh- it's a sort of showing that they're friends. I found this on canineuniversity.com. Did you? Oh, oh, yeah. The only university run by dogs for dogs. <laughs> um, sponges sneeze. 
What? Do they? What? How no. does that work? Uh, they some of them have like little chimneys which they can expel stuff out of, and if they get something stuck in their bodies, then they can fire it out with a bit of a kind of cool. puff of air. Is that what like a blowhole is for a whale? Um, <laughs> they just no. sneezing out their back. No, it's a, a blowhole is like them breathing. Ah. But uh, whales do. They but must I thought sneeze so, yeah. because they do have mucus. Yeah, sometimes yeah, I they thought can. they actually expel. So, like, and for example, isn't that how they now find out whether a whale is ill? They'll have a, yes. a sort of a drone yeah. helicopter go over to catch snot. So they must yeah. be rocketing mucus out of their blowholes. Yeah, but in the same way that you're rocketing mucus out of your mouth all the time. Yeah, in, the, in your breath. And <laughs> whoa. Like whoa, 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 <laughs> whoa! I think a lot of the things Dan says are very sensible, James. <laughs> But in your breath, you'll have tiny particles of like mucus or, or right. spit or whatever, in the same way that they would. But I guess if oh, they okay, have so a, they're not trying to. Actually. If they have whale flu, maybe then it would be would be more mucusy, I mm-hmm. guess. Which whale flu is a thing? Uh, <laughs> which, <Whale> flu. <laughs> yeah, theoretically could pass over to you. Really? Humans. No. Yeah. yeah, I read the other day that there was a whale who died because he got a fish stuck in his blowhole. <laughs> oh no. That sounds like a horrible euphemism. <laughs> that sounds like you've gone to the hospital with a hoover attached to your genitals. <laughs> Just swam in there. I was asleep. So this fish has been dead for three days. <laughs> oh um, sneezing. <laughs> Socrates sneezing. Sneezing. Yeah. I should say that uh, it's very hard to know what's true and what's not about Socrates. And this is an account by Plutarch, uh, which is a couple of centuries later. Um, so like, all these people followed Socrates around, writing down everything he said, because Socrates refused to write anything down himself. So Plato was his sort of main disciple who wrote loads of stuff about him. And then Xenophon wrote loads of stuff. And they sort of refused to ever acknowledge each other's presence, except they would have sly digs at each other's work when they wrote about Socrates. So, you know, it's thought they had a bit of a rivalry going. Did the- Socrates have a really junior... A uh, disciple who would just have to write down shopping lists and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, possibly, yeah. Actually, he did have one called Simon the Shoemaker, who sounds kind of junior. <laughs> what so, did like he intern do? level. He actually made Socrates socks. Did yeah. he? <laughs> yeah, weird. Oddly. Did they have shoes back then or sandals? Would have been sandals. They did have shoes in yeah. ancient Greece. Okay. I mean, they had democracy down. <laughs> <laughs> one of the other things about Socrates' sneezing was supposedly the sneeze demon would notify him with a sneeze or someone else sneezing when his wife was about to have what's been translated as a scolding fit so, oh, that, he, yeah. so that he could run away. Because <laughs> oh, yeah, apparently she his got... His wife's Xanthippe, wasn't she? Yeah. yeah and... She's famously like a scold or a, mm. you know... A... She's like Maris in Frasier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, supposedly she got so angry that sometimes she would turn over the supper table, even if there were guests. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, so I think she was like the Hulk. I wonder if she invented that, <laughs> the, the, the angry table flip. <laughs> I've never done that, and it's my dream to one day do it properly. They really got there with everything before us, yeah, didn't they? they? <laughs> <laughs> Those are the little inventions we don't talk about. Um, Xanthippe was supposedly the only person who ever beat Socrates in an argument. It was said. Really? Um, yeah. Um, by basically shouting over him louder than <laughs> he could speak. Uh, and after one argument, she poured a, um, what do you call it, a chamber pot over his head. And wow. it led him to remark, after the thunder comes the rain. And that's oh. supposed to be a clever thing that he said. He even invented, I ask for the news, not the weather. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, time for fact number two, and that is Andrew Hunter-Murray. My fact is that people used to hang their fridges from the ceiling. (laughs) What people? 
Um, and why? Because... To create more room on the floor? No. no. To stop vermin from getting at your food, oh. you suspend it from the ceiling like a bird feeder, but it's a person feeder. Um, and this was, I think, in the 17th and 18th centuries, and even into the 19th century, I think, people So were basically still... just before they got fridges. And, Pretty much, yeah. yeah. The f- it was called a meat safe. So it didn't actually involve artificial refrigeration, but it was the precursor to the fridge, basically. So more like a larder kind of thing. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so you would just get a, a box made of wood or metal uh, with perforated sides, and um, you would hang it from the ceiling. Oh, really? Some people mounted theirs on the wall, and some people just put them on the floor with long legs. Right. So meat safes had doors, Yeah. yet they still had to keep them off the ground because of vermin. <laughs> yeah. Okay. They can chew through. I think they could could be true through if they were wood or things okay. like that. Yeah, yeah. Right. But basically, the original safe was for keeping meat in. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Oh, really? So that's before they had safes yeah. for money and stuff. Yeah. People were quite against refrigeration when uh, it sort of came in. Like, so in the early 1900s, when we started being able to transport ice in in big batches, um, and we'd start creating refrigerator compartments to transport food, um, people were against it for two reasons. So I think this was mainly in America. It was quite quite interesting. They thought that, first of all, it meant that sellers of produce could manipulate the market because mm. now you could preserve food. You could create like an artificial scarcity yeah. and then cause the prices to go up and then sell it oh, for more. Oh, wow. And it also meant fewer end-of-the-day bargains because you didn't have to sell your food at the end of the day. So um, people were often banned from refrigerating their foods overnight and preserving them till the next day to sell them because meant you couldn't do those things and in fact also they thought that uh, it meant food wouldn't be as fresh uh, and so in 1880 I think one of France's most successful fruit wholesalers was this guy called Desugi or Dekugi he used to transport his fruit all over France in trains and sell it everywhere and he started refrigerating it in the, cha- in the trains in a cold chamber full of ice when people found out he was refrigerating it they were so outraged that because it meant that his fruit wasn't fresh anymore because he put mm. it in a cold chamber that he had to uh, invite people to a public ceremony in a public square where he burned the fridge and agreed never to refrigerate food again Wow. And everyone got food poisoning for 100 years <laughs> in France. Yeah, it was when they used to get ice from um, lakes, didn't they? Uh, one of them was Lake Wenham, which was the most famous lake in the world mm-hmm. in the 19th century because they got ice there and they took it all the way around the world. Was that um, the one in Massachusetts? Yeah, it's near Boston. Yeah. And um, now it's just like a reservoir. It's fenced off. You're not allowed to go there. It's just like a little rubbish reservoir. But it used to be the most famous lake in the world. That's where all the ice came from. Yeah, and they f- it was really, really clear, really seemed clean. Uh, somewhere in Mayfair, I think, they used to keep some in a, in a shop window with a newspaper behind it so you could <laughs> read the newspaper to show how clear it was. Yeah. The first time they brought any over to the UK... They didn't know what to do it, what to tax it, because it was ice. They didn't know whether it was water or it was a solid or liquid Mm -hmm. or whatever. And they kind of spent about two months trying to work out and it all melted. (laughs) Um, And then there was um, in Sweden, they had a lake as well, which had really good ice. And they renamed their lake. I think it was called Oppersgard or something. They renamed their lake Lake Wenham so that they could say they had Lake Wenham ice as well. Wow. Smart move, Swedes. Um, yeah, I think that was, it was a guy called Frederick Tudor who became known as Frederick the Ice King of the World Tudor <laughs> who first decided, that who first realised that he could make his fortune out of getting all this ice off Lake Wenham. And then he paired up with another guy who invented the ice plough, which I think is really cool. So you had horse-drawn ice ploughs in the 1830s, I think it was, which would go up and down the lake um, cut, and it would cut the ice into wow. big blocks so you didn't have to cut it by hand anymore. Yeah. This is really interesting refrigerators this is the this is the line i read online refrigerators have been used successfully to artificially hibernate many animals 
snakes, lizards, and even bats have been hibernated in domestic refrigerators. So, and there's this gives you a whole protocol of how you can hibernate artificially an animal of yours if you have a turtle or if you have a lizard. Mm. Uh, Certainly why I bought my fridge. Yeah, but I just didn't know that was possible. You can actually... and But they they say that uh, what the fridge will not do, definitely, is if it drops below what you're meant to have it as, as the hibernation coolness, it will kill the animal. So you've got to be really careful. I'm not sure we're advising people to do it, though, are we? Certainly store them on a different shelf to the yogurt. (laughs) (laughs) Um, there are two really dangerous things about fridges. Really dangerous. Um, the fact that the London Fire Brigade says that fridge freezers are the most dangerous household appliance when it comes to starting fires. Wow. They cause the most deaths. Um, it's because they have a lot of plastic and flammable insulation. And a lot of ice. And a lot, you would have thought, but not but, enough. But not the enough firemen, ice, when they turn up, you don't use ice, James. <laughs> yeah, but ice, when heated, turns to water. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Okay. And they do use water. Be cool if there was a fire brigade who used ice. You could fit ring nine 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 or something, and you get like this is a really serious fire, guys. <laughs> they turn up with the horse ice plow. Get so many blockages in your hose pipe. I don't know if it's workable. Um. So anyway, that's one dangerous thing about fridges. Oh, yeah, yeah. The They're going to explode, set fire to your house. Uh, the other one is so four in every five U.S. fridges has fridge magnets on it, and I don't yeah. have the stats for the U.K., but I would guess similar. And a lot of fridge magnets are so strong that if you have a pacemaker, can have deadly consequences. Oh, yeah. You walk past pacemakers and it disrupts the, or um, it can completely disrupt it. That's pretty you strong your fridge magnets, so right? Apparently, you have to put warnings on a lot of fridge magnets now because yeah. fridge magnets do tend to be stronger than your standard magnet. Wow, wow. There's not enough space on a fridge magnet for a warning. As in uh, that way, if you had packet. a... Oh, on the packet. It would ruin the witty phrase. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Walk a mile in someone else's shoes, then you'll be a mile away yeah. and be wearing their shoes. Brackets. You do you get a lot of pacemakers with brackets. Attached to the internet these days, don't oh, you? Yes. Yeah, those kind of things. I don't really know what it does. What it does is you can do a number of things. Like it has a scanner. So anything that you put in, you scan the food that oh, goes smart. in. Yeah, and it is and smart. You run out of um, you run out of milk, and it knows you've run out of milk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's part of the uh, what's internet, it called? internet, the internet of, of things. things. Yeah, and there was in 2014 there was the first hacking scandal where people were hacked through fridges, weren't they? Yeah, <laughs> they sent really. Yeah, 750,000 phishing emails were sent from fridges to people's email accounts. Oh wow! Oh, I oh, thought when you that? sort of said hacking into fridges that you just steal a banana or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Because that would be kind of hacking I'd be interested in. We have 500 kilograms of beef in the Nigerian account that we would like to send over to you. But yeah, I think that's really cool that we might be able to be hacked through all of our household gadgets. Fantastic. Can't wait. (laughs) I can't wait for my own bedside lamp to turn against me. Okay, time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that TV star David Frost used to host live shows eight nights a week. Mm, Fantasist David Frost. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so this is... uh, Is that a time zone thing? It is, it's surprisingly true. Uh, David Frost used to host a lot of night shows and afternoon shows. uh, And what he used to do was uh, do four shows in England, and then... He would take Concord over to New York, and Concord famously bragged that you had often arrived before you left, and that allowed him to then do a show that night as well. 
and so he managed to do eight shows per week. Great. Very impressive. Yeah. So he used to just go back and forth on Concord. Uh, you doing couldn't do my it these shows. days, could you? Because it takes like eight hours to get to New York. Exactly. Since yeah. Concord is, has gone, yeah. uh, this has become impossible. But yeah. It was, I don't think I appreciated it enough at the time because I guess I was too young. Concord was extraordinary. It used to go over at my house when I was very young. Yeah, Didn't I it? remember this amazing yeah. sound of it. Yeah. Um, when faster wow. than faster than a rifle bullet. I think. Wow. Um, and, and fast... So if you fired a bullet at the retreating Concorde, <laughs> You'd never Concorde catch would accelerate it. away. <laughs> wow. Wow. Faster than the rotation of the Earth. Yeah. 1,350 yeah. miles an hour is the top speed. Ridiculous. I mean, yeah. it was twice the speed of sound, wasn't it? It wasn't like they just broke the speed of sound and thought, well, let's linger around one or two miles an hour above it. <laughs> they doubled it. Yeah, they went twice. You're right. Unbelievable. It's amazing. And they used to fly at a sort of altitude of fifty to 55,000 feet. People used to say that you could see the curvature of the Earth when you're at that height. Yeah. Which is astonishing. So cool. mm. um, one of the most amazing things about it was that it had, I'm quoting here from an article about uh, computer-controlled engine air intakes. Right now, that doesn't sound very cool, but it is because what it means is that the air going into the engine had to be slowed down by a thousand miles an hour over a distance of fifteen feet. Wow! Yeah, wow. air comes in at the one thousand three hundred miles an hour or whatever it might be, and it has to be slowed down only over four meters. That's whiplash. That air has serious yeah. whiplash. And without it, the engines just would have blown up immediately. But that was the cool thing about it. It's the kind of fact you do not want to be told if you're me or Dan and it's about to take off. (laughs) If we didn't do this, the engines would explode immediately. (laughs) Fortunately, we think it's going to go okay. Um, Andy Warhol used to steal all of the the items on the plane, (laughs) sort of like little plates and and silverware Mm. and so on, because he knew that it would be collectible. For some reason, like he just thought it would be collectible. And so he encouraged people... no excuse for stealing. I know. I know a lot of stuff in the British Museum is collectible. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't abseiled in there in the middle of the night to get it. Let's oh, go yeah. to David Frost, shall we? Yeah. yeah. Um, he was offered a contract to play for Nottingham Forest, uh, but he turned it down because the maximum wage for a football player at the time was £15 a week. And he predicted Concord and his desire to travel on it eight <laughs> times a week. <laughs> thought, That's not going to sustain me. Yeah. But obviously in those days, uh, before Jimmy Hill, um, there was a maximum wage for footballers. And so it yeah. wasn't a very good profession to go into. We should, um, just very quickly, for younger listeners and people who may just have never have heard of David Frost, explain who he was. So he, he died not too long ago. He was a TV host. He used to do interviews. Very famously interviewed Richard Nixon. And there's a movie, Frost Nixon, which won a lot of awards. And he was just one of those guys that seemed to know everybody and be around for every major event on TV. Uh, some of his TV shows that he did. Yeah. Can I read a few out? Yeah, go for it. Uh, a Degree of Frost, The Frost Report, Frost Over England, Frost Over America, Frost's <laughs> Weekly, The Frost Interview, Breakfast with Frost, Talking with David Frost, Headliners with David Frost, The David Frost Show, <laughs> Frost on Friday, Frost on Saturday, Frost on Sunday, The Frost Program, Frost on Sketch Shows, Frost on Interviews, Frost on Satire, Frost Tonight, and Frost. <laughs> but not a touch, a touch of Frost. Of frost. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, he really made the most of that name. Yeah. yeah. Was he paranoid people were going to forget it or something? That is it's a bit strange. But it's a good name for a, for a, an interviewer and a host or something, because it's a noun, which is good, but it's not a bad noun like worms. <laughs> <laughs> worms on Sunday. Breakfast with worms. <laughs> Touch of worms. <laughs> Um, we actually, so um, 
James and I, this show that we do, Museum of Curiosity, we actually had Frost on the show. And weirdly, it was the last program he ever did. Oh. Yeah. So Museum of Curiosity, his appearance on that is his final appearance. It was quite amazing. Because he was on the airways for more than 50 years, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. Um, and constantly as well. I don't think you could escape in, him in the in the 70s, 70s, 80s. Do you know what the longest career of any presenter in history was, according to the Guinness Book of Records? Oh. No. Is it someone in Japan? No. Oh. Someone in Cuba. I was close. Um, she's called Inez Sanchez de Revuelta, uh, and she was on TV for 52 years. Uh, she hosted the programme Teleclub, um, since 1963, and has never been off TV for more than 3.5 months in all that <laughs> wow. time. That's something, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. <laughs> I really hoped you were going to say more than 3.5 minutes. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Just for bathroom breaks and naps. Um, while I was uh, was reading up on Nixon, just came across this fact. Nixon used to love uh, fireplaces. He used to love a roaring fire. So he used to, at the White House, make sure that there was always a fire roaring in the Lincoln mm. Room. The thing is, though, is that he was never interested in the heat. He just loved the fire. So he used to have all the aircons turned on to high in any room that he had a fire on. Wow. Yeah, because he just didn't... He was. He just liked the sound and the look He liked it, the look, yeah. yeah. He just yeah. wanted a roaring fire. Just get a picture. You'd think. Yeah. Well, much a, more environmentally friendly. If there's a fire going, it's easier to conceal the noise of the tapes being changed in the machine. <laughs> <laughs> You're recording <Ooh>. people. <laughs> Topical as ever. <laughs> he also, more weird behaviour from Nixon, after his dog Checkers died, Secret Service agents saw him eating the dog biscuits. <laughs> no, they yeah, Really? No. But the crunching of the dog biscuits helps disguise the sound of the changing of the tapes. Um, Frost said when he when he came on this uh, on Museum of Curiosity that um, when he did the interviews with Nixon, Nixon was the worst person for small talk. He had no small talk whatsoever. Um, so it was so weird that he used to insist before any interview five minutes of small talk. Nixon insisted. Nixon would insist that he had five minutes of small talk with the person before an interview, wow. but he just didn't know. So th- In Frost... theory, that sounds like a good idea because you get to, you know, relax and, you know. Yes. but So Frost remembers those bits of small talk and he said they were truly awkward because he just mm. didn't know what to say. One thing he said when he came up to him was um, get any fornicating done on the weekend. <laughs> that was his opening line. Actually, speaking of fornicating, Nixon <laughs> once had delivered to him a naked woman in a trunk. Um, in a what? suitcase, yes. Um, and this was from he had a couple of kind of hard partying friends who apparently were the only kind of people he properly relaxed in front of. He was notoriously uptight usually. And uh, there's this guy called Rebozo who <laughs> thought, <laughs> I can't believe that's his name. I've just read that and realized how ridiculous that is. <laughs> so uh, there's a guy called Rebozo and his friend Alplanalp. <laughs> <laughs> These guys would never have had the same career as Frost had, would they? <laughs> <laughs> Breakfast with Rebozo. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, they got a, a prostitute, I think, and got her into a suitcase and brought her to the White House and um, bumped into the Secret Service agents and were like, we've got a delivery for Nixon. And unfortunately, <laughs> the Secret Service agent said, what is it? I said, it sounds like there's a naked woman inside there and turned them away at the door. But so he never got his gift. Well, well done them for doing their job and not letting Rebozo and Alpenel <laughs> get one of their capers away. <laughs> it's for a series of books about Rebozo and Alpenel's crazy adventures. <laughs> It's always just another <laughs> naked prostitute in some <laughs> other kind of... <laughs> <laughs> We're just here to give this wedding cake. <laughs> we 
opened this in to install this new chimney. <laughs> Okay, time for our final fact of the show, and that is James. My fact this week is that the original chill pill was a pill that you took when you had a chill. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. That was very good. Makes a lot of sense. Um, So yeah, this is from, let's say, 19th century. Uh, It was like a homemade pill that you would make. Um, The ingredients would be sulfur quinine, arsenious acid, uh, strychnine, Prussian blue, and capsicum. Uh, and you would shove it all together into a pill form, <laughs> and then you would take it if you had a cold. And was it called? It was called chill pill. It was called a chill pill, yeah. Cool. Mm. So yeah, um, that was the original chill pill. And the use of the word chill, as in to relax, only dates back to 1979. It uh, dates back to a song called "Rapper's Delight." Oh, uh, which is apparently really? by Travis Sick Tricks Isaac. Well, rappers, uh, rappers delight. You will know it's the probably the most famous rap song it's of like all time. One of the first ever rap songs. Yeah, isn't it's it? I said a hip hop, a hippie, a hippie, oh, a hip hop, hop. You don't stop rapping to them. Oh. Yeah, oh. it's uh, mentioned fourteen times in the OED that song. Wow! In the, wow. Ox- in the Oxford English Dictionary, um, it's the first time that anyone used the word rhyme as in a set of lyrics, as in listen to my rhyme. Ah. Um, oh. The first time anyone used the word rapper. Um, to refer to someone who's rapping. Previously, um, it would either mean a massive lie or it would mean someone who like raps a table or something. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and it was the first place to use MC, as in um, Master of Ceremonies. Wow. Oh, my God. So were people just listening to this song at the time going, what <laughs> is this guy talking about? <laughs> no, as usual, these things were used, but this is the first citation yeah. um, that they have. Did, and did... also um, the first use of the word ill, meaning bad. Mm. But meaning good? Uh, meaning good, it was seven years later. Oh. So it took seven years for ill to mean bad, as in, this is, oh, this is really ill, man, to meaning good, which is, oh, this is really ill, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'd just like to point out that you can't pull off either of those phrases. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say the date of the, uh, the original chill pill? 1879. Um, but any time over the next 20 years, they still were making oh. it. Um, you know, because obviously a lot of... Uh, uh, wacky medicines were peddled in the 19th century, not mm-hmm. all effective, um, and in pill form. And one of the most successful peddlers of these medicines was someone who made Brandreth's vegetable pills, um, which could fight off basically everything you'd ever have. So fever, sickness, headache, pimples, ulcers, yellow <laughs> fever. And essentially they were just laxatives. Mm. And so the whole thing was that the point was uh, that they got all impurities out of you. So I think one of the taglines was, Brandreth's pills put all your pains and impurities out of the system through the bowels. But it was um, Giles Brandreth's great-grandfather. Really? Yeah. Wow. Who got who got really rich off them? Yeah, he gets there's a street named after him in New York now because he became so rich and famous because of these pills, and he gets a mention in Moby Dick apparently. Really? Wow! Giles Brandreth's great grandfather, isn't that cool? Oh, it's so weird when you hear about celebrities with a great 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 grandfather who was notable. Yeah, like you just think, wow, like yeah. that's just. I was reading Bear Grylls's autobiography uh, on holiday, and his great 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 grandfather, don't know how many greats, wrote the very first self help book. And it was oh, called yeah. self-help. Really? Yeah, and um, it's uh, it was so big in its day that it outsold on the Origin of Species, which is when it came out roughly at the Samuel same time. Oh. Yeah, I can't remember his name. Um, that's it. I yeah. didn't know that he was related to Bear Grylls. Yes, yeah, directly related. Wow. Yeah. Oh, with a name like Samuel Smiles, it's the ideal uh, profession, isn't it? Yeah. As is Bear Grylls, if you want to be, you know, someone who lives in the wild. There is an amazing. He'd be better if he was called Grylls Bear. Yes. 
Why isn't he called that? He is when he <laughs> fills in forms. <laughs> <laughs> um, another weird relation I found out about, speaking of that actually, the other day, is that, is it Stephen Dubner, the guy in, from Freakonomics? Yes. Who um, we love and think is great. Um, his grandfather or great-grandfather wrote Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer. Did he? Did he? Yeah. Wow. So I was looking up some slang terms of things that are older than you'd think they are. Um, so, for example, the word text as a verb goes back to 1564. Does it? Wow. Yeah. Obviously, it doesn't mean to write a text on a mobile phone. It means to uh, to quote texts. And um, dude goes back to 1876, which was originally to make yeah. fun of a woman, the way a woman was dressed. You'd say, oh, she's a dude. Um, and Or there was even a feminine uh, version of it, dudeen. Was it was a it was after dude became a male word, hmm. and you'd say, right, uh, there's a thing. Joe went east and married a young dudeen out there. Wow, can't yeah. believe men hogged that. One of the few, you know, quite yeah. cool, fun nouns that's been applied to us, and you guys had to get in there, <laughs> clutch it away. Well, now we're stuck with dudette or dudeen. Uh, one slang term that I was reading about, uh, cowabunga. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Mm. so. What do you associate cowabunga Teenage with? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I would have yeah. thought it was a Japanese word, is it not? Oh, uh, I haven't. yeah, I haven't done the total origin on this. Oh. It's just that I watched a documentary on the Ninja Turtles and they said the uh, the writers took cowabunga from Snoopy. Did they? Really? So cowabunga first appears in Snoopy. Really? Yeah, I think on a cover where Snoopy's on a surfboard as well. Wow. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. Um, I looked up a timeline of... Uh, slang terms by okay. Jonathan Green, oh, yeah. who is an amazing slang lexicographer. We have his complete slang dictionary. It's so good. Oh. So he's he's done these really cool online slang terms for all sorts of different things. So just idly, I was looking at slang terms for vagina over the centuries. These all date from the 19th and early 20th century. Um, coffee grinder, <laughs> front, front parlor, bum shop, carnal man trap, <laughs> central office... Bit on a fork. <laughs> and my favourite, that thing. <laughs> it kind of makes it sound like we used to repurpose vaginas for a lot of other things. <laughs> well, I, I sell my wares out of it in the daytime. I saw my coffee grinder out of the front parlour. Mm. Um, I use it as a central office. <laughs> <laughs> Off to the bum shop. <laughs> um, a really interesting thing on pills. Okay. Is that so? The color of the pill you're swallowing can have an effect on uh, can affect how well it works. Really? Yeah, placebo effect. Because if you take the blue pill, you wake up (laughs) in your bed and everything's the same. If you take the red pill, (laughs) that's from a movie called The Matrix. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) I get some of the references. Now this is a placebo effect thing. So uh, red pills are more effective for treating pain. It's been found, and blue pills are more effective for uh, pills to calm you down to have calming Mm. effects. And there's an exception to this. So blue pills are more effective tranquilizers, except for Italian men. It's been suggested (laughs) that this could be because blue is associated with their football team. And so with they football team, oh the The Italian football football team, team, yeah. yeah. So Italian men see a blue pill and just get really overexcited because it reminds them of their (laughs) their football team. (laughs) That's genuinely what the researchers concluded. That is bizarre. They're the only people who don't get karma when they swallow a blue pill. (laughs) Sorry, cool. (laughs) Very weird. Um, John Wesley, who founded Methodism, he had a um, lot of ideas of curing the cold. Uh, one of them was to make pills out of cobwebs. Oh, yeah. wow. thought that that would work. Uh, presumably it didn't. Uh, he also thought you could take a very thin rind of an orange, roll it inside out, and thrust it into each nostril. 
Uh, so not effective. No, not effective. Um, when SARS um, came out, and uh, when was that? When it was released, the big <laughs> when I had the big launch party. <laughs> they shouldn't have invited so many people to the launch party. <laughs> But it was thought in some parts of China that um, vinegar would solve SARS. Ah. And um, what they would do is they put vinegar in the corner of the room and that would supposedly help to cure it. Uh, And it was like a folk remedy. But it was really good news for vinegar salesmen because (laughs) it meant that they could sell tons of their wares, of course. Um, But that was bad news because it meant that the vinegar salesmen were then travelling between village and village and village and they were spreading the the cold. Oh, no. Yeah. This is, that's kind of like a I mean that could be a zombie film couldn't it based on yeah. vinegar salesmen spreading the common cold yeah, yeah that's Definitely. a really good idea yeah not a that's very a, exciting film the or it of the sounds like cold. another one of the brilliant schemes of Rebozo and Alphanel <laughs> <laughs> okay that's it that's all of our winter facts thank you so much for listening if you'd like to get in contact with us about any of the things that we've said over the course of this podcast we can be found on our Twitter accounts I'm on at Schreiberland Andy at Andrew Hunter M James at Egg Shapes and Chazinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to no such thing as a fish.com where we have all of our previous episodes. We'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. <laughs>